Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm a practicing hemonc doctor, and my interests are medicine, oncology, and health policy. And that's what you're going to get on Plenary Session. This is season four, hashtag zero COVID. It's zero COVID because we're not going to talk about COVID. We're back. Oncology, medicine, health policy. We've got a lot in store for you. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, leave us a rating or write us a review. It helps new listeners find the show. You can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. You can email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. Give us your suggestions on what we should be covering. And we got a new YouTube channel, Vinay Prasad, MD, MPH. Follow us on YouTube. I'm putting up a 10-part series on reading and interpreting cancer clinical trials. You'll want to watch it there. And if you really love this show, you can back us on patreon.com. Patreon backers get access to slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. And with that, let's start the show. I'm back in Plenary Session. I'm joined by Dr. George Sledge. George Sledge is professor of medicine at Stanford University. He's well known to many people, I think, who listen to this podcast. He's a former, pre- former past president of ASCO. He uh, worked on the faculty of Indiana University for 30 years. He's been section chief, uh, division chief here at Stanford University. Uh, and he is an extraordinary breast cancer trialist and somebody who will be well known to the listeners of Plenary Session. Dr. Sledge, thank you so much. A real delight. It's a pleasure to be able to sit down and talk with you. My pleasure as well. Okay, good. The audio is sounding good. Yeah. So, Dr. Sledge, we were just talking. Um, you know, I, 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 I was, um, I'm really grateful to hear that you, you, you listen to plenary sessions. So. I do. Regularly. <laughs> Regularly. Wow. Yes. You know, it's the sort of thing that I think um, you would have done something like this, maybe, mm-hmm. in a different time. Well, in a different time, we wouldn't have done it at all. Mm. Uh, so, I'm, I'm delighted that you're doing it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Uh-huh. I want to start in the beginning of your career. We'll come to so many things that I want to ask you about, especially in breast oncology. But I want to start in the beginning. I was reading about you. Of course, I've done that over the years. Um, and I was reading that, you know, when you were in a college and you were thinking about careers, uh, you know, it could have gone medicine, but it could have gone other directions. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I took the uh, MedCats, the LSAT, and the GREs. <laughs> I kept your options open. In, in, a, in a one-month period. <laughs> my, my head was spinning. Mm-hmm. I actually got higher scores on the LSATs than I oh, did, did. Yeah, on the MedCats. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I could have gone in several different directions. And you chose medicine. Yeah. What was it? Uh, at the end of the day, uh, it just appealed to me more at a personal level. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I had a science background uh, at, in college. I was a zoology major. Okay. Uh, uh, but I must say the courses that I enjoyed the most in college uh, were, were in French literature. Ah. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. a great fan of Montaigne and, mm-hmm. and, and Camus mm-hmm. and, the, and the like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I had a really strong grounding uh, in the liberal arts. Mm. Uh, and if you ask me what I recall from college that's useful mm-hmm. as a doctor, yes, the answer is it's the liberal arts yes. part of it. Yes. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Mm-hmm. I think that that's... Um, um, you know, my, my own experience was between science and philosophy, and it's the yeah. philosophy that lingers more. Yeah. It's the liberal arts. Mm-hmm. Who's, who's your favorite philosopher? Do you have one? Yeah, I do. But is it, can I dare say? Sure. I guess David Hume. Uh, I know uh, he's an unpopular figure these days. No, I love Hume. You love Hume. Absolute, my absolute favorite philosopher of mine as well. You too? Yeah, absolutely. I think I know why then. Yes, probably. <laughs> because, I mean, I think what draws us both to Hume is the same thing that we try to, at least aspire to, in what we work on, which is uh, absolute rigor and consistency of thinking. Yes. Uh, 
Also a great humanist. Yes. Yes, if that's not too bad a pun. I know. So. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm also a big fan of um, the Socratic dialogues in Plato. Uh. And, um, you know, that, that famous quote, all of, all of philosophy is a, all of Western philosophy is a footnote to Plato. Not a truth in that. Yeah. Though, I don't know. Uh, Plato would have made it, would have made it, would have made a great Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> he, he believed in the power of the state mm -hmm. to, to rule human lives. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Um, but the, okay. So Camus, you know, that's interesting. The plague. Yeah. And of course this yes. year. Yeah. Um, so, so you were, so you're interested in the liberal arts and you were drawn to medicine and you had the zoology background and you ended up doing medical school at Tulane University. Yes. Um, was that your first time in New Orleans? Uh, yeah. The first time I was ever in New Orleans was when I was applying for medical school. I see. Yeah. And how did you like those years in New Orleans? That was a different time back then. Yeah. New Orleans is, uh, uh was then, and I'm sure probably still is now, a, a, a place that has, uh, it's one of the few places in the United States, one of the few cities in the United States that I would say has a truly distinct culture. Yeah, it does. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, San Francisco is another one of those cities. New right. York is one of those cities. But uh, there, there's no, you don't have the sameness in New Orleans that you have in a lot of other major uh, American cities. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was delightful from that standpoint. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, you can fall in, in love with New Orleans food. Uh, very, very, mm, very, very easily. easily. Yes. Yeah. So I, I love it. I, I love my time in New Orleans. I love it. Every time I go back, um, you know, some conference here or there takes me to New Orleans. I always love it. And it's, uh, yeah, some of the best, some of the best dining in America. No, I, I, I live just a few blocks away from the French Quarter, uh, oh. all, all uh, throughout most of medical school. So absolutely delightful. I, w I would go down and listen to jazz in, in, in the quarter. And, and when you were a student, did you, did you already get a sense that academic medicine was your future? Pretty much, I, did. I, I pretty much knew from the beginning. I, I, I mean, that I, I was as interested in the ideas of medicine as, as I was in the patient care. Okay. I was interested in both. Yes, uh, but I, I love the idea of thinking through medical problems. Yeah, uh, thinking them through in terms of how they'd apply to patients. And that's a theme, I guess, that has carried forth throughout all your work. Yeah, it's been it's it's the fun part of medicine. I, I you know I I had a, a wonderful uh, professor in in, in in medical school, a guy named C. Thorpe Ray. He was a cardiologist, and he was uh, the head of the department of, uh, of medicine while I was there. And uh, uh, he would always say to medical students, uh, you know, once you leave this place, 10 years from now, you're going to be doing the same thing day in and day out. Mm. And if you don't find some way of making it interesting, you're going to be bored to tears and burn out. Mm. Uh, and I always took that to heart. And I think academia, of course, was the easiest way to do that because right. uh, it allows those of us who have attention deficit disorder uh, to, to keep enjoying themselves with new things. Mm. I think that's well put. I mean, I do think that um, whenever I talk to people who change their schedule, become more clinical, become more research, it's always that, you know, you, you, can, you, you reach a comfortable level. You get to a spot where you're comfortable. Yeah. And to keep it interesting to yourself, you want to shake things up and make a change. Yeah, and uh, of course, uh, as it turned out, being an oncologist <laughs> forced you to do that every few years anyway. Of course, just keeping up with all the drug yes. names. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> so you went from there, from Tulane to SLU, St. Louis yeah. University, yeah. Um, and uh, you were an internist. Uh, you uh -huh. did internal medicine residency. Um, was oncology always in the cards even back then, or did it? How did how did you fall into oncology? I knew I was going to be a cancer doctor uh, when I took care of a patient. Uh, Am I allowed to mention her name? I think it, enough time has passed. Yeah, yeah her, name was, her name was Carmi Steele, Carmelita Steele. Uh, 
22-year-old African-American woman. So when I was taking care of her, I was maybe, I don't know, three years, four years older than her, something like that. Uh, And uh, Carmi uh, developed leukemia uh, at a time when uh, we didn't have any of the supportive care stuff that we have now uh, to the point that anything you gave, you had to give through a peripheral IV line. There were no ports, for instance. and uh, took a, came into the hospital gushing blood from every orifice. Mm-hmm. Uh, took us a few days to diagnose her, mm-hmm. uh, where we were just sort of pouring blood products into her to try and keep her alive. Finally figured out what it was, uh, started her on treatment, uh, gave her uh, you know, the then standard uh, uh, chemotherapy. Uh, uh, she was the very first person I ever told that they had, that they had cancer. Uh, her, the, the, the hematologist uh, uh, who was going to tell her it was, you know, was away uh, you know, when the result came back mm-hmm. and he was going to be back in a day and a half or so, something like that. Yes. It, was, it was an easier time, I guess, in, in terms of uh, that yeah. uh, as well. Uh, so I asked him if I could tell her because I didn't want to keep her waiting. He said, sure. Uh, so I went in and, and told her and explained what you know, acute myelogenous leukemia was and uh, you know, what the treatment was, what the prognosis was. And... Uh, uh, and then she turned to me and said, uh, Dr. Sledge, who will take care of my children? You know, and uh, I, I, you know, finished up. I went into the stairwell and I cried for a half an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the day I knew I wanted to be a cancer doctor. Mm-hmm. And I, st- you know, I still think about her. You know, she died of, it, of an infection, mm-hmm. uh, you know, at, at a time when we were much less good at supportive care than we are now. Yeah. I mean, to, to, you know, today she might have been cured. Um, but, you know, that, uh, I, I have found that, you know, if you look at doctors that go in, into cancer, you know, some of them go in because they've had an inspiring uh, teacher. Right. Some go in because of patients and some go in because of the biology. Right. Uh, certainly my entry drug for oncology was a patient. Yeah. No question. And it was hard. I mean, it was a tough situation, emotionally tough. And... We still have that, you know? Yeah. But there's some people who they that they feel that once, they don't want to feel it again. Uh-huh. You felt it once and you said that this is what you have to do. Yeah. It, it was, I mean, it was my passion. I mean, I, I was an intern. I was, I think, in the second month of my internship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, after that, I knew I was going to be a cancer doctor. No question. But it means something to you then, I think. It means that um, even though it's hard, um, I think to some degree it, you felt as if that's what it means to be a doctor. Yeah. To shoulder those burdens. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, there are many doctors who never see patients, right? Obviously. And, uh, and there are many doctors who the patients they see aren't particularly emotionally tough yeah. uh, patients. Uh, I mean, we're, we're in a field where every day, and I was speaking to one of my nurses about this just yesterday, you know, every day we make life and death decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know we, we we do things that change people's lives for better or for worse, and it's a you know it's a huge responsibility, uh, but boy, it's a huge blessing as well. And talk uh, about that. Why is it a blessing? Um, I think we get deeper into people's lives than just about anyone else on the yeah. planet. You know, I, I I think we just do. I, I, uh, I uh, patients always start out as. Uh, as patients and they always end up being friends mm-hmm. they always end up being people you care about people mm-hmm. you love mm-hmm. and, you know and love is the right word yeah uh, and you know that is such a privilege yeah that is such a privilege 
it, it always it always delights me. I always tell everyone, you know, my, my day in clinics, my favorite day of the week. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, and it's funny you talk about it. We have all had those people. I mean, we you, you always feel connected to your patients, uh-huh. but there are always a few people who, yeah. you know, they'll linger in your mind yes. for a long time. Yes. Sometimes, you know, I find myself, you know, you, you think about them in dreams, you know, that uh-huh. kind of yep. level. Yep. Um, and I think you're right. I, I mean, I think what you're putting your finger on is that uh, it, this has always been a profession, I think, where the privilege is you are, you enter into people's lives and they confide in you in ways that normally you'd have to know someone many mm-hmm. years or decades and maybe you still don't get mm-hmm. so close. Uh, we get that almost immediately. Mm-hmm. Uh, the flip side of that privilege means that sometimes you have to be in tough spots mm-hmm. and, 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 and things don't always go the way you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess, I guess that, I think, repels some people in this mm-hmm. profession. Mm-hmm. But I think that's, I don't know, to me that's why we do it. No, I think you're right. You know, I had a fellow, very, a very fine fellow uh, once who was academically you know, uh, top of the class, brilliant, hardworking, thoughtful, uh, and halfway through a rotation with me, quit oncology uh, and went to work in the laboratory because she said she just could not take the responsibility. Uh, she could not accept the possibility that she might be wrong when she made a decision that, you know, that might end up claiming someone's life. You have to be willing to accept that as well, Yeah. you know, uh, because we, we routinely... You know, as a profession, of course, we routinely make mistakes that do end people's lives. Yes. Uh, and despite our best efforts, sometimes because we haven't been curious enough, uh, sometimes because the medicine isn't far enough advanced, sometimes because we're operating with inadequate information. Uh, but those things, of course, haunt you as a physician, right? And so you have to be willing to, to accept that uh, if you're going to be in this field. When it happens to me, Dr. Sledge, I take myself to the torture chamber. Yeah. By that I mean something bad happened to my patient. Uh-huh. And I take myself to a place where I want to think it through, everything. I yeah. go back. I read the chart like uh-huh. an obsessive person, you uh-huh. know. I mean, I'm talking like hours, you know. Yeah. And I go back and I replay everything, every yeah. decision. Yeah. And in my mind, the, 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 I, want, I mean, I'll punish myself for my errors. But what, do I want, what I consider an error is if knowing what I knew in that moment, would I 100 time, 99 times out of 100 made the same call? Mm-hmm. Or should I have made a different call? Mm-hmm. And I, I guess, I think that's an important mental exercise. Mm-hmm. Do you find yourself playing this exercise? I do. And, you know, I, I, mean, I, I mentioned Carmi Steele. That yeah. was the first one I did it with. I'm still thinking about you it. You know, yeah. and I, to this day, I still, you know, yeah. did I do something wrong? Yeah. And, you know, to a certain extent, that's, uh, certainly for me, it was the, the arrogance of a young intern thinking that he could conquer acute leukemia if he was only a little bit smarter. And that's an important thing to say because sometimes yeah. you didn't do anything wrong. It was no. just out of your hands. Sometimes it was just biology. Yeah, exactly. You know, sometimes you just have no control over yeah. those things. Sometimes yeah. it's bad luck. Yeah. Uh, but occasionally you do find, uh, and this is why it's valuable to go over this and yeah. it's why, it, why it's valuable to torture yourself. Yeah. You do find those things that lead to uh, process improvement. Yeah. Not just, I'm, I made this decision wrong, but boy, I could make a whole series of decisions wrong uh, if I operated this way. For me, the thing that always, the, the, I mean, the lesson that's most vivid on this topic is um, uh, where mistakes get made is um, somebody comes to you to tell you about a patient mm-hmm. and they enter the conversation with their own diagnosis of yes. what's going on. And you have to train yourself not to accept their diagnosis. Yes. 
you have to start from first principles uh-huh. and get to where they are. Yes. And if you and if you let yourself buy into where they think they are, uh, I think that's one of the things I learned, especially when fellows present yeah. cases to you and such. Yeah. No, you have you have to be willing to take deep dives. Yeah. You have to be curious. You have to be. Curious. I, I think curiosity is a you know really important part of being a good doctor, right? Mm, yeah. And good researcher. Mm-hmm. I think probably the most important trait. It's hard to teach, you know. That's yeah. the thing that some people yeah. just have it or don't. Yeah. So, Doctor Sledge. So this is so. So then you were at, you finished up at, at SLU. You went to uh, uh-huh. University of Texas San Antonio yeah. uh-huh. to do your Hemong Fellowship. Yeah. Is that when you went into the? I mean, by then you were probably thinking about breast oncology. Um, I knew going into the program that that it was heavy on breast oncology. Okay. Yeah. So I, I, to explain, I, first off, I was incredibly naive about the field of oncology. Mm-hmm. I never thought about, for instance, applying to MD Anderson or Memorial Sloan Kettering or Dana Farber or any of those places. You didn't think to apply. Didn't even think to apply to them, you know. Uh, uh, and I, I got to San Antonio by and large because uh, one of my professors at uh, at St. Louis University also knew uh, one of the guys who was in the program at San Antonio, one of the professors at San Antonio, and he said, you know, George is a good guy. You know, I've been chief resident there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you should, you know, you should, uh, you should consider him. So I went down, I interviewed, and they accepted me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a small program. Mm-hmm. I think it had a half dozen faculty at the time. Uh, but, boy, the, the quality of that faculty was just so incredible. Uh, Bill McGuire, who was my mentor, was basically the father of, of breast cancer biomarker biology. Mm-hmm. You know, he was the you know probably the world's leading estrogen receptor biologist at the time. Uh, we measure progesterone receptor along with estrogen receptor because of work that was done in that laboratory. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was uh, he's the senior author on the first paper for HER2, you mm-hmm. know, in science in mm-hmm. 1987, mm-hmm. Dennis Lehman's famous mm-hmm. paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, in addition, we had Kent Osborne, you know, who went on to be uh, head of the cancer center at Baylor, hmm. uh, also yeah. a famous breast cancer biologist. Yeah. Uh, Dan von Hoff, one, well, of the world's lead, one of the world's leading phase phase one doctors. He was a faculty member there. He was a faculty member there before he went to Arizona. I yeah, didn't know that. Uh-huh. Okay. yeah. So it, it was a small, it was a relatively small group of faculty, but boy, it was it, it was quality. Yeah. Uh, and I learned so much from those people. Uh, in particular, I learned from Bill McGuire because uh, oncology during that era, uh, you know, was entering an era where uh, a lot of new drugs had been developed, chemotherapy drugs, over you know, starting in the 1960s, mm-hmm. and starting you know, late 70s, early 80s, people were combining these drugs like crazy. Mm-hmm. So the history of that time was ever longer combinations, mm-hmm, okay, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I mean, lymphoma, you had promise, From, promise mop, right, yeah, or something yeah, like yeah, that, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. you know, where, you know, where, where, you know, you, where you'd throw eight different drugs at a patient and that was going to cure their cancer, of course, you know, yeah. and of course there was absolutely no biology to that, mm-hmm. and, and in retrospect, of course, they were all, what they were all doing was killing dividing cells, mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm. so it didn't make any particular sense to combine them anyway. Uh, McGuire took it from a very different view because he was a very different sort of person. He had come from NIH and uh, where he had trained as an endocrinologist. Mm. As an endocrinologist at, at NIH, he, had, he, had, he was doing estrogen receptor work and mm-hmm. some of the best estrogen receptor work. It was a more fluid time where people could move more easily between specialties. Yeah. So when he was hired to head the division at San Antonio, uh, uh, he, he was hired because he was an estrogen receptor biologist mm-hmm. to head an oncology division. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Wouldn't have happened today. Wouldn't have happened today, right? Yeah. And uh, 
and knowing that he had zero clinical skills in oncology, uh, he hired on the clinical side uh, Chuck Coltman. Uh, Chuck Coltman at the time uh, was the uh, the chair of the Southwest Oncology Group. Mm -hmm. And when I say this is a, was a quality group, I yeah. guess was of I mean, the six people you have, everyone. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, you know, uh, it, you know, you had, uh, you know, of those six people, you, you have you have a, a president of the AACR, yep. president of ASCO, the head of a cooperative oncology group, uh, two cancer center directors. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's, it's it's rare to see that in a group of just six people, right? right? Uh, so it, you know, it was an exceptional group to learn from, uh, but it was exceptional in large part because Bill McGuire really believed in biology. I see. And so at a time where everyone was thinking, let's, let's come up with the m most bizarre combination and come up with a clever acronym for it, McGuire was taking deep dives in, into biology and basically formulating the principles of, of, you know, of modern bi biomarker approach to cancer. It's a recurring theme in oncology, Dr. Sledge, which is, you know, when you get a flash in the pan, when you get a success, and as they did with combination chemotherapy yep. with Hodgkin's yep. testicle, um, and maybe to some degree uh, CMF for adjuvant breast, yeah. uh, then the idea is, well, this will work for everything. Yes. It's just the right combination for everything. Yes. Mm -hmm. And we saw it again in 2001 with imatinib. Yes. We, we, first of all, we tried imatinib in every tumor. Mm -hmm. you know? yes. And then we tried TKIs for everything. Yes. And they were never as good as the first. No. And they were, uh, uh, they were good. The places where they were best are the places where, in retrospect, they should have been the best, right? Mm -hmm. Probably, you know, yeah. you know, uh, uh, you know, I, uh, I when I was ASCO president, I, I, I gave a talk where the meme was smart tumors versus stupid tumors. Of course, famous legendary right. talk. Yeah. And and you know the drugs that work the best to this day are the you know the drugs that treat stupid tumors, mm -hmm. right? And by stupid, you mean of the phenotype of the tumor, there is a high frequency, often single driver mutation. Yeah, yeah, CML. Yeah, you know, BCR able and. Yeah. And not only that, it's, it's not just that you have that mutation, but when you have that when you have that particular abnormality that causes the cancer, subsequent mutations tend to be in that same thing. Right. Right. I mean, so in CML, we've now I don't I don't have a clue how many drugs we have. Several. Uh, five, in, six, seven. Imatinib, dasatinib, nilotinib, basutinib, panatinib, and omacitaxime is the only thing that's not a, a yeah. variable in right. it. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, and and, and basically are all. You know, most of them target the same ATP pocket. Right? Exactly. You know, yeah. so that's just, that, that's kind of the definition of a stupid tumor. Right. Um, you know, uh, I, I deal with triple negative breast cancer on a regular basis. That's a smart cancer. Right. right? Uh, the genome is like a shattered dinner plate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and you know, uh, so, I, but I, but we didn't realize that at the time. Certainly, yeah. you know, certainly in the in the 80s and 90s, we didn't have any clue of that. So you saw, you know throughout that period attempts to say it's let's either add more drugs or more of a drug and just see if it'll you know if it'll if it'll solve every problem one of the consequences i think of that mentality that um if it worked for one thing it probably will work for other things yes is that people like bill mcguire are often pushed to the periphery yes. they're the ones there's, there's not as much funding for people trying entirely innovative approaches yeah yeah, I, I think that's absolutely the case. Um, we, we tend to be camp followers mm -hmm. in oncology. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's that's been a recurrent lesson over time. Dr. Sledge, so then you moved to Indiana, where you had yeah. a long career, yeah. I guess, eventually becoming the second chief of breast oncology. Yeah. Um, 30 years there. I guess I want to start, I'm, I'm very curious about what it was like the first few years on faculty. Um, you know, what were the days like back then uh -huh. when you started on faculty 
Was it, um, you know, were you putting in long hours and you were trying to become both a trialist and an expert mm-hmm. oncologist? Mm-hmm. What was that time like in your and, life? And, and a lab doc. And a lab doc, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh, you yeah, know, I, I, I had a laboratory for uh, for the three decades I was at Indiana University. Yeah. Um, well, again, I, I came to what was a fairly small program. Yeah. You know, we had uh, four or five, five or six faculty members at the time really? when I got there. Including Einhorn? And, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, Larry Einhorn, who uh-huh. in essence cured testis cancer. Uh-huh. Uh, cured testis cancer, I might add, two years out of his fellowship. <laughs> it's hard to top that. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. One of the smartest human beings I've ever met in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, of the, one of the people who had the best memories of mm-hmm. everything in oncology mm-hmm. that, that I ever knew. Um, can I share a story Please. from him? Please. Yeah, Le- Larry was one of those guys who, uh, uh, after I had been there for four years, Larry started asking me questions about breast cancer because I had finally reached an intelligence level where he thought I could I could answer <laughs> questions that he didn't know the answer to. I see. Four okay. years, huh? Four years, okay. And that was after having trained with Bill McGuire uh-huh. uh, and Kev Osborne. Uh, uh, once in the late 1980s, and this was before the internet, so you actually had to go to the library and look in the Index Medicus, I don't yeah. even know if that still exists, uh, uh, to find something. Uh, Levamisol came along in colorectal cancer as, right. as an adjuvant. Child mortality drug, Exactly, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, fairly brief flash in the pan. But, right. uh, but so, I, so I said, you know, gee, I wonder if this has ever been tried in breast cancer. So I figured I could either go to the library and spend five hours looking through Index Medicus, or I could walk around the corner and say, Larry, has labamisole ever been used in breast cancer? So I walk around the corner and I say, Larry, has labamisole ever been used in breast cancer? And he stops for a second. You can see the wheels grinding in his head. He says, mm. yeah. He says, um, Lancet, 1983, Argentinian guy named Rojas, I think. Uh, negative trial. Wow. I said, okay. <laughs> I go over. <laughs> pull out the Lancet from 1983, and sure enough, there's a negative Levamisole trial in breast cancer from a guy named Rojas from Argentina. <laughs> so, That's remarkable, particularly yeah. because it's not his field, so he just happened yeah. to have that kind no, of and, and, but, but he came from that generation where, yeah. where the expectation was going to be that you were, you, you were going to be a broad general medical oncologist. I see, yes. And, and one of the things that occurred, actually, I would say, during the 1980s actually was a transition from people in, in a lot of programs, being general medical oncologists, to being, to being specialists. I see. Um, tumor specific specialists. Yeah, and I was, you know, I got there and I, I was, you know, they, they said I could either be a general medical oncologist or I could specialize. I said, well, I think I'll do breast cancer since that's what I did in my training. Right. Uh, so that's how I started doing breast cancer. It's fascinating. Now it's gotten, uh, I, I was talking to somebody at Sloan Kettering, they said there's an EGFR person and then there's the yes. other person for yes. Alec Ross, yes. Rhett. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So it's gotten specialized. Yeah, well, in breast cancer, you have inflammatory breast cancer doctors. You do? Yeah. I didn't know uh-huh. that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, um, these are the, the beginnings of the career, um, yeah. and, uh, and, and I mean, what were the, what was the hours like back then? Yeah. Were they long days? Yeah, pretty long days. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I really appreciated those long days, I must say. Go on. You know, sometimes there were long days in the laboratory, yeah. you know, and I had a lot of time to think. Yeah. I don't think we give junior faculty enough time to think. No, we don't. Uh, which is, a, which is a real issue. Um, the clinics were... Uh, were long. I was the only breast cancer doctor in, a, in, in the only medical school in the state. Uh, so I tend to get breast cancer patients from all over the state very early in my career. Uh, uh, we did a lot of attending, uh, so a, lot, a fair amount of inpatient service. Uh, 
At the time, we were the only place, or what I should say, one of two institutions in the United States where you could get iphosphamide mm -hmm. for testis cancer okay, right. uh, because of Larry's work. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we would literally have uh, you know, 30 patient wards where 15 or 20 of the patients were getting iphosphamide for testis cancer. Wow, okay. You know, a second-line therapy sure. for VIP, testis cancer. Yeah, yeah VIP. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it was at a time where... Um, we didn't have modern anti-emetic therapy. Oh boy! So you know everyone was up chucking. Yeah. Uh, and as a result, you know this was pre-ondansetron. Yeah. You would schnocker the patient and hope that they would sleep through their vomiting. Wow. Uh, during the five days of platinum-based therapy. Oh dear. Uh, so very different time. A very different time. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I think you've twice hit on this, but um, you know, at least from probably when you took care of. Um, of your patient with AML, yeah. at least until like two, three years ago, you know, seven plus three was the standard. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in testes cancer, it remains, uh, you know, uh, you know, depending on the situation, BEP, VIP, yeah. high dose, uh, carbo. Uh -huh. Um, and the great, I mean, I think what we understate is like our chemo got better as the antiemetics got better. Our, mm -hmm. our seven plus three got better as we had fungal prophylaxis, as we were better. Yes. Right. So yeah. supportive care actually, to some degree, it empowered chemotherapy. Yes. And it also, I think, fundamentally changes, you know, patients still walk in with the mis or the conception that chemo means puking your guts out, yes. et cetera. Yes. And the reality is, thankfully, that is, it still does occur, but it's much yeah. rarer than it once was. Yeah. I, I, you know, the number of patients I've hospitalized for nausea and vomiting in the last decade is, I can count on one hand. Right. You know. Maybe one finger. Right, one mm -hmm. finger, right. Yeah. Whereas in prior years, it was yeah. de rigueur. It was everyone. Yeah. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. and Davida talks about in his book, the original, uh, you know, MOP regimen is extremely emetogenic. Yes. yes. And he talked about how the patients were being housed in one building and they're getting treatment in building 10 at the NIH and they'd walk outside and the trail they'd walk on was just strewn with, you know, people puking. Yes. So this was... This was the time. This was breast cancer oncology. You were, you were doing it all. You were running a lab. Uh -huh. You were thinking about clinical trials and getting involved uh -huh. in that, starting to work with cooperative groups. Yeah. I guess one thing I'm very curious about is, you know, these days, people who are in that same position, mm -hmm. I think they, there's a lot of talk about work-life balance and burnout. Yeah. When you did it, there was no talk of these things. <laughs> yeah, we, we solved the work-life balance problem by not having a life. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what I, yeah. Uh-huh. And yet, and yet it wasn't, it was more than that. It was also the expectation of, of that work would be anything less than all encompassing was different. Yeah. I mean, it was, I, I think an intentionally heroic era, mm -hmm. uh, whether or not that was smart or not, is a different question. That is a different question. Yeah. Well, what do you think? Well, it's not. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, listen, uh, people who don't sleep well, don't make good decisions. Mm -hmm. Agree. Um, I think it's, a, it, it's as, as simple as that. Um, and I don't think, uh, a lot of us didn't sleep very well during that era. I see. Yes, yeah. of course, especially during your training. Yeah. But even as a faculty? Even as, even as a faculty member to some extent, yeah. I, I mean, it would, it would be primarily when you were on service. But, uh, you know, when I was on service, uh, I would get out at 8 or 9 every night. Uh, and sometimes would be called, sometimes, of course, would be called back in to see someone at 2 in the morning. So, you know, those, you know, you, you in, in contrast today, where at least at Stanford, you might just do a week or two on service. Right. You know, we would do a month yeah. on service yeah. at a minimum, and yeah. some faculty would be doing two or three months straight. Uh -huh. uh, and you came out pretty shell shocked. I, uh, I mean, there was, there was a lot of PTSD after that. <laughs> I can uh, imagine. But, but having said that, it was an exciting time, you know, and, it, and uh, I, it's a time that I really enjoyed thinking back on because it, 
you know, it set up for me a lot of the dynamics of what's gone on subsequently in my career. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I always loved the lab because it was a place where I could try out my clinical ideas. Yeah. Uh, on a small scale. On a small scale. Um, I always loved the clinic because it was a place where I could try new things with my patients. But having said that, that first decade of my practice, um, you know, I, I started as an assistant professor in 1983. And from 1983 to 1994, there were no new drugs approved by mm -hmm. the FDA for breast cancer. Right. Not one. I see. Okay. I mean, it's unimaginable today, right? Yes, you know, right. In, the, in the last decade, we've had 12 or 13 drugs approved for breast cancer, more than one a year. Sure. And to have, in contrast, you know, zero in a decade meant that you were basically playing with, you know, with the same toys mm -hmm. during, during that entire period. You're thinking a lot more about <laughs> dosing and periodicity and sequencing. And yeah, you know, you know and, and again, this is the period where, of course, uh, you know, people are starting to use high dose chemotherapy and bone marrow transplant for breast cancer. Oh yes, uh, you know, or, or you know, yeah. or, or ultimately dose densification, yeah. you know, which at least you know has some positivity. Mm -hmm. um, the transplant folks in particular mm -hmm. could be pretty arrogant. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh, I, I remember going to one conference where where a famous uh, breast cancer transplanter was was speaking. And it, it was it was part of as part of the conference they were giving a case presentation, uh, and you know the, the poor fellow who's giving the presentation is you know, going on about how the patient got this drug or that drug for metastatic disease, uh, and the transplanter you know who is sure that he can cure cancer, you know jumps up and says why don't you just shoot her in the head. <laughs> You know, wow. that, that was his, his take on, on what we were using as therapy for metastatic breast cancer at the time. The arrogance of that of has, has always stuck with me, of you know, because, because I think cancer is a disease that should make you modest, not arrogant. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But, um, no, I, I think, and of course, uh, uh, 15 years later in six randomized controlled trials, yeah. the arrogance has faded. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you know, I want to push on this one thing a little bit. I mean, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that probably the hours you were working um, and, and being sleep deprived, uh, that does not a good career make and doesn't good thinking make. So mm -hmm. I agree with you there. Yeah. I worry a little bit. The pendulum is swung a little too far the other direction. And by mm -hmm. that, I mean the places where I think there's, I mean, not that I support anyone working long hours actually, and I personally don't, I try to get good night rest. Um, uh, it's thwarted, uh, you know, for lots of mm -hmm. other reasons, but not, all, mm -hmm. but not work. Um, but I think the ways in which the, this, I, some of these ideas have swung a little too far is, um, you know, I think sometimes people feel as if, I guess a few things I would say. One, I mean, I think we forget that, you know, academic medicine is, is still a competitive environment. And yeah. so, and, and, and some competition is not bad, you know, yeah. uh, and that's one. And then the next thing I would say is that um, working hard is, is part because you feel compelled to, but sometimes it's your purpose. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it's the thing that keeps you going. And what you want is to find work that doesn't feel like work. Yeah, you, you want to love. Going to, going, going to work every day. Yeah, I, I think the other thing, and I, you know, there's always a danger of sounding like an old dinosaur, you know, when men were men, you know, in, <laughs> uh -huh. in, in my junior days, you know. Um, one thing about being up all night, mm -hmm. every other night or every third night during a residency, which is what we routinely used to do, um, is that at the end of your training, you never, ever panicked. Mm. You know, you had... You had seen every disaster possible, okay, you know, yeah, right. and, you never, and you never ever panicked. Yeah. You know, it it it, uh, it allowed you to, to, to face uh, dangerous environments with equanimity. I think. I think it's uh, important. Yeah. Because, 
anxiety is also a, a horrible thing when you need to make yes. important decisions. Yeah, and you have to be willing to make those decisions and have to be willing, willing to make them with relative quickness and relative ease uh, if you're going to be a good doctor. Yeah. I've always been, uh, you know, I, 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 again, I'm not somebody who supports long work hours. I've been a big critic of uh, the residency training because I feel like we give people long hours and we just make them do paperwork. Yeah. That's not what the long, no. that's not what it's about. Yeah. And, and what I, but I, but what I think it has cut a little bit too far the other way is that the purpose of this, you know, our profession is, you know, many times your clinic ends at four thirty and you're out the door by five thirty. Uh-huh. You, you know, you can work, you can get good yeah. at being that, but it's the some days you're not out the door till nine. Yeah. And you have to be open to the fact that those some days are going to be there. Yes. Uh, and, and it can come on any some, it can be any day. You never know. Um, yeah. but, but that is also, I mean, part of why the job's important mm-hmm. because it can't be anyone else. It has to be you till nine o'clock that day. I gave up trying to figure out my schedule a long time ago, you know, because, because, yeah. you know, you, 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 I'd come into my clinic and, you know, there'd be, you know, 18 or 20 or 22 patients in clinic. And, and some days I look at the schedule and go, oh my God, yeah. half of these people have a, a metastatic disease. And yeah. I'd come in other days, and, oh, this is an easy clinic, lots of routine follow-ups. And of course I was always wrong. Uh-huh. Yes, Because exactly. the, the routine clinic days, you know, all, all, always involve yeah. someone who was recurring, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, with liver and lung mets. Yeah. And, and then there were those days where everyone has metastatic disease and everyone's responding. Yeah. Uh, and, and we're not very good at predicting that. It's actually part of a larger theme in oncology, I think, which mm-hmm. is we're not very good at predicting who's going to benefit from these therapies. Uh, from, from these therapies. I, I always thought that you know the biggest the biggest tragedy is not that our, our drugs don't work very well, though that is a tragedy. The biggest tragedy is, is that we don't know who they're going to work in. Mm-hmm. And so we expose a significant number of patients to untoward toxicity with no benefit whatsoever. I would contend, I agree with you wholeheartedly, and I would contend that um, that at least one of the challenges is that the incentives in our system are have changed, and they're good, they're incentives to develop new products, but the incentive from the company standpoint is the largest population to eke out the smallest statistically significant benefit. Yeah, and this is this is the other continuing uh tension, I would say, in, in, in drug development that, that dates back at least to the 90s and maybe, and maybe to the 80s. You know, and and it's, the, it's the Bill McGuire tension, in fact. You, know, you have people who are really, really focused on finding out why a drug works in a particular population, and it's that population that it works in, and, right. and no one else, because the biology makes sense. And on the other hand, back in those days, you had you know, high-dose chemotherapy for everything, right? right. Uh, with the idea that that was going to be the the panacea for you know for all of cancer, I mean to a certain extent, of course, we're seeing that today, uh, with the tension between very very targeted agents in in very very rare diseases versus checkpoint therapy for yes. for the world. Yes. Let's, let's put check you know let's 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 put. Uh, uh, checkpoint inhibitors in the drinking water. Practically, right? we're practically there. Right. Yeah. We're at forty-five you percent. Know, uh, uh, let me ask you about this: triple negative breast cancer. Yeah. Uh-huh. Checkpoint oh. inhibitors. Yeah. Uh-huh. What are your thoughts? Metastatic setting. Let's keep it metastatic. Yeah. yeah. Well, they don't work for most people. Yeah. Right. I mean, sure. they, they, they probably you know uh, they work for some people. Yes, I, I mean, believe it too. You know, yeah. you know there, there are clearly are folks who are now four, five, six years out, who if not free of disease are certainly in long-term remissions with checkpoint inhibitor therapy. Um, but it's a minority of patients rather rather than rather than majority. Uh, they come with real expense and real toxicity. So I, I think they're real. But I but uh, but again, we're not very good at picking the winners there. 
And I think we see that with the recent studies. So, right. so atezomab paclitaxel, atezopaclitaxel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, makes no sense whatsoever, right? Okay, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, and, and it's, uh, I mean, the hand-waving exercise is yes. to say, uh, you give it with taxol, you're giving steroids, and that, that ruins the effect. That's not, I can't, it can't be the case because we have data in so many other malignancies. Absolutely. That's not the case, right? Uh, no, that we have data in breast cancer. And you did With another checkpoint inhibitor, uh-huh. you know, that, you know, randomized, you know, that allowed people to get, Taxol or Nabpaclitaxel. Pembro. You know, yeah, you know, Pembro. And, uh, you know, it didn't make any difference. Right. <laughs> so, so, so that hand-waving exercise no, makes no, no, particular diff- no particular sense. So um, what is, is your practice, I mean, are you giving a Tezo Nabpaclitaxel for pd one over a certain threshold? Yeah. Uh, though I, you know, I, I, I give it, I, I see relatively more ER positive patients than okay. I do triple negative patients. I, I work with Melinda Telly, okay. uh, who's our triple negative guru. I see. Uh, yeah, so she sees more of them than I do. Uh, but I certainly discuss it with patients. Okay. I, you know, but I think you know, my experience is the trials experience. There are, there are occasional patients who do exceptionally well, but they're occasional. Uh, and you know, I, I, it's certainly not going to be the, the solution to triple negative breast cancer. I sure. think we already know that. And um, I think uh, I think that's well put. And uh, I mean, you've been in this business a long time to probably remember. I mean, we, we, we often feel that way too with drugs that never came to market. Yeah. That there were a few people on that trial that you swear to yeah. God, yeah. you know, that they had something going on there. Well, or drugs that came to market and then were removed from market. Mm. You know, Such uh, as which one? Bevacizumab. Oh, of course. Okay. okay. I devoted about a decade of my life to anti-angiogenic therapy mm. and breast cancer. I, mean, I, I did the first phase two trial of bevacizumab and breast cancer. Uh, and... Uh, and you know, I was chair of the ECOG uh, breast committee when we, you know, when we did the first phase three trial in the metastatic setting. And, you know, we, yeah, and we doubled progression-free survival. Mm-hmm. I mean, we thought we had a winner. Yeah, this was back, you know, during the period of uh, you remember the wisdom of crowds yes. sort of thing. Yeah. So uh, when I was when I was chair of the breast committee, you know, we you know we had audience audience response technology where we would ha- have people you know, predict the outcome of trials. I thought, I thought it would be an interesting thing to yes. do. So we had just started uh, E5103, the adjuvant trial. Uh, and so I asked the breast committee, and this is a room full of, you know, nationally, internationally known breast cancer experts, what was their prediction in terms of the outcome of the trial? Would it meet its primary endpoint of improving disease-free survival? 94% of the people said it was going to be a positive trial. Wow. 94%. That tells you where people's hearts were, right? Yeah. Well, this and, is 5103. Yeah, 5103. The study. Yeah, yes, and okay. it also tells you, you know, it, it's really dangerous to fall in love with a drug mm-hmm. when, you, when you really don't understand how it's working right. or who it's working in. Yes. Um, and to this day, I mean, I certainly had patients who got bevacizumab, who had one, one patient in our phase two trial, uh, you know, who had a two year remission with single agent bevacizumab mm-hmm. in the phase two trial. So I, I'm absolutely certain that there are patients there who benefit. And for that matter, high-dose chemotherapy and in, in, in breast cancer, there's, there's, there were certainly patients I know, people who were long-term way. survivors sure. who you know, got transplants 25 years ago. But we don't know who they are. And I, you know, I think you know, certainly our responsibility, not just as oncologists but also as citizens, uh, is to actually know who these drugs work in so that we can use them wisely and... and, and with these hugely expensive approaches that we can actually not use them for the people who, who, who they won't work in. What I learned from Bill McGuire is that if you actually ask what do biomarkers do, 
in the vast majority of cases, biomarkers tell you who not to treat. Right. Correct. Right? Correct. Okay. Yes. You know, you don't give Herceptin to someone who's HER2 negative. But they still don't tell you who to treat. Until but, you, yeah, know. but, you know, yeah. and, and even in, in a HER2, you, yeah. know, you know, if you have a treatment-naive population yes. of HER2-positive breast cancer, you know, about a third of them will respond. About two-thirds of them won't, right. you know. I mean, as opposed to zero percent. Correct, correct. Right. You know, if, if, if you're negative. negative. Right. So, so the biomarkers are great in terms of, of, of eliminating things. And, you know, we've seen this in breast cancer again and again. You know, most recently with uh, Taylor X and our Xponder. Sure. Uh, you know, which is, you know, I think one of the great achievements in breast cancer in the last decade. Right. If yeah. Oncotype DX is very low, yes. you're not going to drive additional benefit from chemotherapy. Exactly. But yeah. if it's high... There's still some people who may not be deriving benefit. They're already cured. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Right. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, that, that trial, you know, if, if you think back in, you know, 2001, you know, the NCI had a, had a consensus development conference on adjuvant therapy for breast cancer. The recommendation coming out of that conference was that every breast cancer patient with a tumor greater than one centimeter should get adjuvant chemotherapy. Wow. Every patient wow. with a tumor greater than a centimeter. Wow, okay. that's a lot of chemotherapy. Okay, and so if, if you ask what's happened in the last 20 years, you know, one of the great advances in breast cancer has been that 80% of those patients who the NCI said should be getting chemotherapy don't get chemotherapy today. Right, right. Right, and that's because of a biomarker that said, don't treat me. And that means less toxicity, less second malignancies, yeah. less people feeling bad. Absolutely. Yeah, no, you don't up, you, you, you don't get toxicity from a drug you don't get, right? Yeah, and I'll give you another good example, which I think is the story of cetuximab in colon cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, approved initially on selected colon cancer yep. patients, very marginal benefit, yep. 1.4 months ish, and then the Canadians with uh, mutations uh, downstream in RAS. Yep. And now we've expanded it to RAS, to extended yeah. spectrum RAS, to BRAF. Yeah. Um, but but the important thing here is if you have those downstream mutations, you're unlikely to benefit. Right. If you don't have them. Not everyone benefits from cetuximab. You right. know, there's still more to right. be found. Yeah, yeah. The biomarkers are still, with rare exceptions, and the exceptions, uh, well, BCR is probably the I best suppose. exception, certainly. Right. right. <laughs> you know, with rare exceptions, the biomarkers have told us who not to treat, and, yeah. and, and that's hugely beneficial. Yeah. Uh, uh, we always tell patients, we're going to, you know, you're her two positive. We're going to give you Herceptin because we know Herceptin works works for your type of tumor. Mm-hmm. But that's, but you know. What we're really doing is saying we're not treating Mrs. Jones, who you who you've never met, because she's her two negative. Oh, that's a better way to put it. Mm-hmm. But to be fair, you did do a cooperative group study in her two negative population. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Tell us about this study. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mean the uh, for uh, less than? I'm sorry, I'm not sure which one you mean. I don't know which one do you mean. I think yeah. I think is a. I'm trying to remember. Uh, it's a study for people who were uh, the fish ratio was less than 1.67 oh, or yeah. something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was yeah, this was a cooperative group study. Yeah, yeah. So, d- done, done by the uh, done to the, through the CALGP, and uh, it was clearly negative in that population. Yes. It now, was. now of course we're, we're revisiting that now. Of course, with antibody drug conjugates. Okay. Uh, because you know there's a you know, there's a school of thought that uh, with antibody drug conjugates you may be able to take. Uh, you know, an ADC, uh, you know, against HER2 and, and target the, you know, the 1 plus and 2 plus tumors. You know, so the, those trials are ongoing and are active. And certainly in phase 2 trials, some activity has been seen. So it's, it's probably worth revisiting. Okay, interesting. One question I always have with antibody drug conjugates is, um, you know, uh, in whatever tissue, you know, uh, it, it binds to the target. It goes into the cell. Uh, the, the payload yeah. is cleaved. The payload yeah. damages the cell. Cell dies. Payload is released into the bloodstream. Yeah. Then it right. goes and kills the next cell. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think you know the you know this idea that this is this kind of smart bomb that only blows up 
you know, the building that's got the villains in it, <laughs> right. uh, you know, uh, turned out not to be correct, uh, right? Yes. Uh, and in breast cancer, you know, we've got TDM1, yeah. uh, which uh, is a good drug. Good drug, but has real, you know, it can cause thrombocytopenia, it can cause liver failure in rare patients, you know, and, I, and, and it's because it's attached to mesantine, yes. you know, and you know, we were doing mesantine trials when I was a fellow. I see. It got right. put on the shelf because it caused liver failure. Right, right. Right? So, uh, yeah, I think... Same, same with some of the other moieties, like uh, yeah. Vidotin, MMAE. Uh, yeah. We, we were doing trials with that, and it got put yeah. on the shelf. Yeah, most, most, of these, most of these ADCs are, you know, are attaching it to something that was already known about, and mm -hmm. many of them had already been through phase one trials and put on the shelf. Uh, and yeah, they're less toxic than if we gave them as a, as a naked moiety. Yeah, uh, course, but, yeah. But but boy, they still have real real side effects. You know, between between 1990 and 2000, you were doing cooperative studies. Mm -hmm. You did a famous one, which yeah. was uh, anthracycline, taxane, the combo yeah. versus the sequence. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. E1193. E1193. Yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. uh, JCL paper. Yeah, yeah. I love this paper. Yeah. Why don't got, you talk about this? Got yeah. turned down by the New England Journal of Medicine. Did it? Because they didn't think it was important enough. <laughs> it became <laughs> the most practice-defining paper of the era. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. It was, that, that was fascinating to me. Um, you know, I mentioned that that, that decade where we, where we approved no new drugs yes. uh, for breast cancer. And, yes. the, and the first new drug was, you know, was Taxol. Uh -huh. uh, you know, at the end, you know, and uh, that, you know, coming along in the early 90s. Uh, uh, my history with Taxol is kind of is is kind of an interesting one because in the early 1990s I, I was severely depressed about about my career choice really? because of that decade without any new drugs. Really interesting, know? yeah. And so I decided I was going to write a paper about the failure of uh, drug development in breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And so I called up a friend of mine at, at the NCI and said, "Hey, could you just send me a list of all the phase two trials that the NCI sponsored?" For breast cancer in the last decade, okay. and by the way, in this period, drug companies weren't doing the trials sure, because yeah. because every everyone knew you couldn't make money in cancer, right? Right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so he sends me the list, and it's a list of somewhere around fifty drugs, and so I go through them, bang, 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 you know, starting in you know nineteen eighty two and going up to nineteen ninety two or something like that, and the very last drug is a drug that is still in trial. So I call, you know, so I call up the investigator, who's Frankie Holmes at MD Anderson, and I said, Frankie, I'm writing this paper talking about new drugs in breast cancer. All the phase two trials have been done the last decade. Uh, can you tell me about this drug called Taxol? Mm. And there's this silence at the other end of the phone. And she says, who told you, George? Uh. And I said, told me what, Frankie? <laughs> she said, it works, George. I said, come on. <laughs> and she said, no, it really works, George. We got a 50% response rate. That turned yes. out to be wrong as well. Uh -huh, uh -huh, uh, uh -huh. You know, more like in the 30s. Of course, but, but uh, first studies are always a little exaggerated. Right, right. yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and so I actually, uh, I had the paper already all, all written and I tore it up and threw it away really? after that phone call. Uh, uh, and then uh, in the cooperative groups, you know, it was obvious because, you know, we had this really positive looking drug and we needed to start doing phase three trials. And so... Uh, the obvious thing to do was to let's you know, like all children with new toys, let's put them let's put them together and have them play together. Uh -huh. And so uh, you know, we knew we were going to do a trial where we could, where we were going to be looking at, co at combinations of mm -hmm. anthracyclines, our most active drugs in breast cancer, with, you know, with with Paxil. Um, and uh, that trial, um, you know, the simple, you know, and, and of course the mantra at the time was that combinations are always better than single agents. Right. 
but I didn't, you know, there's part of me that said, gee, I just don't know. Yes. And, and, and so what ended up, I think, the, 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 what ended up being the clever part of that trial uh, was that uh, we did sequential single agent yes. therapy yes. versus combination therapy. Mm-hmm. So we did A followed by T, we did T followed by A, and then we did the combination of A, A plus T. Mm-hmm. The combination was based on some phase one trials that, mm-hmm. that we had done uh, within, within ECOC. Um, I, I'm sure you're aware of this, but there's this period in your life where you're, and I think all scientists experience it at some point, where there's a few minutes where you're the only person on the planet other than who actually knows yes. something, yes. right? Yes. And so I, I, I mean, I, it's the I, best I, moment of the job. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you is. know, uh-huh. and then, then of is. course you have to run out and tell all your friends, uh-huh. right? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know? yes. Because that's the other part of being a scientist, yes. right? You yes. know, is that you, you run out and tell you run out and tell all of your friends, but but you know, I, I you know I, I get sent the data from from the ECOG statisticians and I'm looking at it and you know okay. Progression-free survival is longer, longer for, for the combination versus versus the, the sequence, and then I flip the page. An OS. And there's the overall survival curve, and it, and it looks like a single curve. Yeah. And I and I go, there must be something wrong here. You uh-huh. Know? Uh-huh. Uh, and I went, geez, Louise. I said, you know, we just we just destroyed 20 years of dogma and breast cancer. It was a beautiful paper yeah. because I think you show combination had deeper responses, had longer PFS, but yeah. the overall survival was the same. Yeah. And the way you wrote it, you couldn't have written it this today. Um, it was, you know, that even though the combination had deeper responses and longer PFS, um, the fact that sequential single agent has the same overall survival with less toxicity means it is the preferred option. Yeah. It reminds mm-hmm. me of, you know, many years later, we now have, in, let's say, metastatic melanoma few years ago we just yep. had nivolumab and ipilimumab yep. and many of us would get nevo then ipi yep. and they tried to give nevo and ipi yep. and I guess the famous paper by Larkin still shows there's a PFS benefit to giving them both together yep. to my knowledge it is still not eked out a statistically significant OS benefit correct and and the other problem with the paper is if you get nevo first <clears throat> they didn't mandate you getting ipi second like you did you mandated the sequence right mm-hmm. so yep. in some of the countries they're running it in unfortunately they don't have ipi available yeah um, but I think the philosophy has changed. Now, oncologists are eager to give combinations that deepen response and improve PFS, even in the absence of OS. I think they've always wanted to give combinations. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's anything new. I, see, I, 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 I don't think it's anything new. I, th- I, think, I, I think a lot of oncologists have always temperamentally yes. thought that combinations were, were going to be superior. Perhaps oh. that's our... I mean, that's that's in our DNA, which is that if things don't go well with the treatment, the answer is yeah. more of it and stronger. Yeah, and you know, of course, there's times when combinations make sense. Sure. So, so you know, if I'm giving adjuvant therapy for breast cancer sure. with, with an adromycin and cytoxin and taxol, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, combinations have the benefit of uh, getting you th- through therapy quicker. Yes, you know, and uh, uh, in some places they make sense, such as CD CDK four six inhibitors. They cannot be given in the absence of yes. aromatase or, yeah. or hormone inhibitors. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so, so combinations. There's plenty of places where combinations make sense. Yeah. The metastatic setting for most cancers is not the same. I mean, pretty much at the same time we were doing this in breast cancer, there was a similar trial going on in ovarian cancer, for yes. instance. Uh-huh. You know what. You know, looking at uh, looking at taxanes and ovarian cancer came to exactly the same result. Uh, I have to check this trial. Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh-huh. I believe it's Franco Muccia, though I could be wrong. Okay. Uh, uh, so, you know that, but that that trial changed how I thought about breast cancer, and in particular the the quest for one more chemotherapy drug. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought was through at that point. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, if the first new drug to come along in a decade that mm-hmm. had a great response rate, sure. acceptable toxicity, didn't improve, you know, it didn't, the combination didn't improve survival. Uh, and basically all you were doing was just, you know, banging, uh, dividing cancer cell. You know, is that really how I wanted to spend the rest of my life? So I kind of actively sought out, you know, in terms of doing new clinical trials, I kind of, after that, actively sought out biologics. Interesting. Uh, uh, even though there was still a lot of chemotherapy going on, and indeed it was during the period where it was the height of high-dose chemotherapy sure. and marrow transplantation. Sure. No, I mean, I think that makes sense because I guess the trial... Uh... Uh, it, it gave you a shock, which is that there will be a limit to the most we can get out of these class of yeah. drugs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No matter what we find, whether we find the ixabepalones and the aribulins of the yeah. world. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and yeah, you, you, you look at many of the, of the drugs that were developed after that in breast cancer and indeed in most cancers. Yeah. Uh, Modest. I, I, this was during a period where I was frequently being, being invited by pharmaceutical companies to advise them. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say the same thing at every single time. And this was while these companies were still heavily invested in let's develop drugs that we can use in every cancer patient, right? right? right, right. Uh, and I would always ask them, I said, imagine this drug is called difungomuctane, <clears throat> and you know absolutely nothing about how, difung- how, how difungomuctane works. Would your drug development plan be any different than the one that you've just given to me? Mm, interesting. And the answer was usually no, you know, and they were doing, they, they were working entirely off of what they called an unmet medical need. Of course, the, the which, 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 which basically is a bad cancer that we don't have any drugs for. Therefore, we're going to throw something at it and hope something sticks. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that philosophy, that thought process is, was just so alien to everything I'd been taught by Bill McGuire. Mm, interesting. You know, uh, uh, that uh, I, I just, you know, I shied away from doing those trials. Even before the label existed, you were uh, uh, an adherent to this, the mantra we hear now that precision medicine is the right drug for the right patient at the right time. Yeah. It, it's what makes sense. Yeah. Um, still makes sense. Still makes sense. Yeah. 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 Now, how precise some of the precision medicines sure. are, different question. Different question. You know? Right. Yes. A lot of our kinase inhibitors are pretty muddy. Yes. Uh, Very dirty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this. Um, the CD... The CDK four six story. Yeah, another interesting story. Yeah, um, you know, uh, uh, and I, I, I've heard it been credited again to Slayman's lab uh, that yes. Slayman was the one who thought, at least they found in cell culture, yes. that there is synergy between uh, yeah. a- anti hormonal therapy and the cyclin four six kinase. Yeah. Then we had a series of randomized trials, and they all show sort of yeah. impressive PFS benefits. Um, I guess the question I have is, and for you, I guess is, you know. Um, do you believe that every woman with hormone receptor positive metastatic cancer should get the combo up front? Or are there, the, or are there certain women you'd give aromatase inhibitors to first and then add it in later if you need it? Sure. So, uh, in my own personal experience was you know, leading uh, one of the trials with a bemocyclin. Oh, yes. Uh, and Monarch. this was, yeah, uh, Monarch 2. Monarch 2, uh, yes. Yeah, and this was, uh, uh, you know, flavastrin plus minus uh, a bemocyclin. And in, in that trial, if you subsetted patients by site of disease. Um, there were pretty clearly patients who you should routinely treat with, uh, you know, with the CDK4-6 inhibitor. But there were other patients, and these tended to be the ones you'd predict, kind of the yes. more in- indolent bone-only disease bone patients. Only disease, right, sure. Where, it, you know, there really isn't a whole lot of evidence <laughs> that you get great benefit by, by adding the comp- you know, by adding the drug in early on. Mm-hmm. So I, I think you can certainly make a case for it. You don't have to do it. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an old breast cancer doctor. All of us who've been in the field for a long time 
have had patients, you know, who got a whiff of tamoxifen and, 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 yes. and went into a remission for a decade. Right. I, mean, I, 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 I mean, one of my favorite stories is I, I had a patient who was diagnosed in 1989 uh, with early stage breast cancer. In 1992, uh, she develops lung metastases. She goes to her local oncologist. She says, you need to get your affairs in order. I think you're probably going to be dead within the next year or two. Mm-hmm. Uh, she comes to us at, uh, at the university. Uh, we see her, say, well, you've got a strongly here, a positive breast cancer. Let's put you on some tamoxifen. This was before aromatase inhibitors. She, go, she goes on tamoxifen. Ten years later, her tumor starts growing again. Wow. We put yeah. her on aromatase inhibitor. Yeah. Ten years later, uh-huh. her tumor starts growing again. Yeah. And by the way, the oncologist that told her she needed to get her affairs in order, she went to his funeral. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah. you know, I, we, we don't know. Yeah. And there's, but but what we do know for sure is that there are some patients with hormone-sensitive breast cancers who do incredibly well for an incredibly long time on hormones alone. Sure. We're not really great at predicting who they are, though. They, they tend to be the people you'd think they, they'd be strikingly estrogen receptor positive, uh, slow-growing indolent tumors, uh, bone-only disease. Yeah. You know, I mean, they, they tend to be those folks. So, so yeah. I think it's certainly reasonable. And a um, long time between the initial surgery and the relapse. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Right. Yeah, and I, you know, I've got particularly some elderly patients mm-hmm. who I'm kind of worried about the, the you know, the, the side effects, of, you know, of, of these therapies because they have real side effects. Cytopenism. Cytopenia is fatigue, uh, you know, with a bemocyclic diarrhea, uh, you know, uh, interstitial lung disease uh, in some patients, there's an increased risk of blood clots. You know, if I have an older patient uh, who's got bone-only disease, I'm quite happy giving her a hormonal therapy alone. Hmm. I have a theory that, you know, um, with metastatic breast cancer, hormone receptor positive, we've always kind of dichotomized it into the people you thought could be treated with hormone therapy first initially. Yeah. And the people you felt like there's just so much disease, it's something that makes me yeah. nervous, starting with chemotherapy. Yeah. Uh, the cyclin, the CDK4-6 inhibitors came in. And they're supposed to fill in this gap. This yeah. is the, okay, yeah. but they also kind of—you see where I'm going with this? Yeah, yeah. They displace chemotherapy a little bit. I think so. Yeah, I think so. I, 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 you uh-huh. know, if you look at, well, let's let's say you look at single-agent taxol. Yes. Okay. Uh, single-agent taxol in frontline metastatic breast cancer yes. has a, has a response rate in the low thirty percent range. Correct. Uh, you give an AI plus a CDK four six inhibitor, and you get a number north of that. Uh, and you, know, and, and you get, I might add, longer progression-free survival uh, with a whole lot less toxicity. So, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, there may be, may be the rare patient with horrible visceral Correct. You know, disease that is rapidly progressing. I feel like I may need to give chemotherapy. But, boy, there aren't many of those anymore. Interesting. There aren't many of those. That's, that's been a, a benefit. Now, this story has not played out yet, of course, because, you know, I, I think, you know, the big issue right now with, CD, uh, you know, with CDK4-6 inhibitors is, you know, it's the move to the adjuvant setting. Yes, and, we, and I've seen press release results that say some yeah. positive results. Yeah, so at, at ESMO last, uh, last fall, um, you know, there were presentations for palbocyclib and for abemocyclib. The ribocyclib data is still out there. The Natalie trial is uh, still, still accruing patients. Uh, uh, palbocyclib is pretty clear; it doesn't work in the adjuvant setting. Sure, I mean, it, you know, two negative trials. Okay, I mean, it's 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 dead there. Uh, a bemocyclib is a very interesting story, and I and uh, but not a final one. Uh, but they press release some positive results. Yeah, it's it's a, it's, a, it's a positive trial. Um, you know, it's a, you know it's a statistically significant positive result. 
in for, IDFS. For, for IDFS and also for distant uh, relapse-free survival. Okay. Uh, now, uh, the, the problem with the data is that it's really, really early. Uh-huh. You know, it was presented, when it was presented at ESMO, it was 15 and a half months follow-up. It was presented at San Antonio with 19 months follow-up. You know, for an adjuvant trial in yeah. ER positive breast yeah. cancer, what, 19 months doesn't mean a whole lot, yeah. right? I mean, we're talking about a disease where the average patient relapses after five years sure. uh, today. So uh, I, I don't know yet. I mean, it's a, you know, it's there. It's, it's a statistically significant benefit. Um, you, know, at 50, you know, at 15 and 19 months, it's around a 3% difference in terms of distant relapse-free survival. Uh, uh, but, boy, we need to follow this a lot longer to know whether it's real or not. The other thing that kind of makes you worried about it um, is actually the, the data from the Penelope B trial, mm-hmm. um, which was you know, subsequently presented. This is a post-neoadjuvant trial, so everyone gets chemotherapy, uh, they have their surgery, and then they're randomized to, to get or not get CDK4-6 inhibitor with Palbo for a year. Um, and the curve split in the first couple of years. Mm-hmm. So kind of at the point where we're seeing with the bemocycline, mm-hmm. there was mm-hmm. a similar split in the mm-hmm. curves, mm-hmm. and then they come back together. Mm-hmm. Which tells you it delays microscopic growth rather than eradicating it. Yeah. Well, you know, now there are differences in the patient populations. Uh, they only get, you know, they only gave a year of CDK4-6 inhibitor, whereas yes. the Vemus trial gave it two years. Uh-huh. But, but I think all of us are going, yeah, not a slam dunk, not a done deal yet. We really need to follow these patients longer rather than declaring victory. That's, mm-hmm. that's interesting. I, I hope that's the case. But I saw with, uh, with neratinib, yeah. Uh, that victory was declared rather quickly. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. I want to ask you this question, which is kind of a meta question, which is, um, you know, I, I mean, I guess when, when I think of what it means to be an academic oncologist, I think of, uh, I think of you, I think of people like you. And what do I mean by that? I mean, you've always, you see patients in clinic and, and you're the consummate clinician. You're also somebody who's always, you're participating in trials, you're thinking about trials, mm-hmm. and you're thinking about the biology, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and then the last thing that we alluded to, but we didn't talk explicitly about, is that you, you write. And, and you don't just write the things that people write these, you know, the, the classic mm-hmm. things that people are writing, which is, you know, a review article, an original article, mm-hmm. maybe the rare editorial. Mm-hmm. You were always willing to write thought pieces, reflections. I mean, I think it's touching upon your liberal arts background. Mm-hmm. Um, meditations, the kind of things you might think on a long walk. Um, mm-hmm. And you would write that, uh, you know, your, your classic lecture on, on smart and dumb cancers. Um, but many other um, sort of columns you've written, blogs you've written. Um, I guess I'd say, I think, I guess I'd say, like, one, I'm a big fan of it. You know, obviously, I think, and I'm, and I'm not the only big fan of it. A lot of people are a big fan of your writings. And I think that that's the thing we don't encourage as much that, you know, that the, the, the part of academic medicine, we get so driven by the metrics and I see young investigators now, you know, there are are other podcasts that advise them how to be a young trialist. And it's all about just checking off the boxes and getting on these studies and being the last author on these big papers. Um, But no one is encouraging them to I guess what is I guess I guess that's what I'm asking you. So like, what made you decide to write these? Where do you get these ideas? Do you you know and and how important is this in, as a part of your career? Well, it's, it's real important. I mean, I, I th- thank you for saying kind things about my blogs. I, they're uh, I, I've been given the freedom to basically run wild with with my ideas, which not everyone gets. Uh, uh, so 
My thanks to the editors of Oncology Times for being willing to let me do that. Um, but I guess you know it comes from a kind of a larger place where, where I live uh, intellectually, which is um, I've always been fascinated with studies of creativity um, and creativity in the sciences in particular. Mm -hmm. what, what makes someone's creative in the sciences? Um, there, there's an old literature on this, and I, w I wish I could cite the article because it's one I read you know, over a decade ago, and, I, and, and now I can't even find it anymore, but, but it's one that I absolutely loved, um, which uh, asked the question, if you look at the, at, at the folks who ended up changing the field, can you predict at a fairly early point in their career who they are? And so they did a kind of a fascinating experiment, and that is to say they went back in a couple fields. One was in high energy physics, and the other was in some, some bio field, subfield of biochemistry. And they said, let's start with the guys who are on the podium, highly cited, have gotten the awards from their societies. You know, they're, they're considered the, the giants in the field. And let's roll the clock back 20 years to when they were just getting out of their training and compare them to people who trained in the same, same level of institution in the same discipline. Okay, interesting. Okay, yeah. and then see, can you tell any, can you, can, you, can you get any sense of why, you know, this person succeeded and this person failed. And they came up with some, a couple of results that I found really fascinating. One is that from an information theory standpoint, the guys who, or gals, who, who succeed tend to be central nodes in far-flung networks. Okay. So um, most of us in the cancer field only talk to other cancer doctors. You know, we, we live inside our, our ghetto. Right? Right, yeah. And, and, and there's a real group think inside your ghetto. Right. Um, whereas the, the people who, who are successful in the, science, in, in, in the sciences might be, let's say it's, a, let's say it's an oncologist who's got, an, who's got a friend who works over in material sciences, mm -hmm. and has, has got someone who in sociology, mm -hmm. and maybe someone in biochemistry, and is able to bring them all together. Uh, and those people actually create advances, right? Uh, the, other, the other thing that they, they found in, in, in this study was that the people who were really successful tended to be voracious readers, mm -hmm. and not just readers in their own field. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that they spent all their time reading science or medicine or JCO. Um, they, you know, they, they, read, they read literature. <laughs> okay. They read a lot. And I, I think you know, why I've always valued the liberal arts and why I think medicine you know, has made a mistake in, in not emphasizing it more in, in people who were hiring to be doctors, um, is that it actually forces you to think, and think broadly, and think clearly. Um, and I, I think doing that is what makes you successful in, in the sciences. It's a very long-winded answer no, to, 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 to your question. It's an answer that I, I, I'm naturally a fan of, um, because <laughs> I, 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 I haven't looked at that literature, but I agree with sort of everything you said. And I think, you know, I guess, um, you know, sometimes I've, people ask me to look at the CV of somebody applying to medical yeah. school or something like that, and I can't believe it, uh -huh. you know, because um, the amount of hours they've logged in a lab yeah. is high. Mm -hmm. And some of the people in the labs they've worked in are, uh -huh. well, be, uh, uh, uh -huh. they don't take my calls, you know, they're big uh -huh. things. Um, but but what, I, what I struggle to think is that, you know, this young person working in this um, high importance laboratory may have little one-on-one -on -one contact with the PI. Yeah. And the day-to-day -day may be a lot of the rote uh, things of the lab. Yep. Um, that if you are removed from the clinical question, if you're removed from the scientific question, um, it, it's just a hurdle to jump through to get mm -hmm. into medical school. Um, 
Mean, meanwhile, I imagine the counterfactual world where you took this young person with all this talent and intelligence, and instead of making them do this as the entry to the medical profession, um, you did what I think wasn't so uncommon when I was growing up, and um, certainly when you were in your time, uh, you know, I worked in a grocery store. Uh, so, you know, I was bagging groceries. Uh, I, I learned a lot about life and I learned a lot about work from that. Um, I also had the chance to have a summer in college where I did nothing but read mm -hmm. fiction and, and, and nonfiction and, you know, and, and read things. And I had another summer where I traveled abroad and did some other things. Those kinds of experiences, um, they help you think about things. They help you think about life, the mm -hmm. meaning, you know, and these broader questions. And I think they are enriching. Um, and, uh, and, and to echo your point, and I guess, you know, the, the thing about your columns that always strikes a chord is that you do draw upon, I think, the humanities, also oncology, but I think, and, and then I would have to say that the, the, the most interesting thing to me, and, and I think many other readers, is that um, it's so easy to get sucked into the day-to-day, -day. we're doing mm -hmm. this trial, this trial, this trial, it's yeah. hard to step back and just look at our field broadly, where have we come from, where are we going? Mm -hmm. And, and, and you get a lot of that in, in, in your writing. Yeah, and I, I, I continue to wonder where our field is going, yes, right? right. You know, uh, you know I, 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 recently I've been giving a series of lectures, of, uh, basically title is Breast Cancer a Decade from Now. Yeah, it's okay. Uh, I think one of the fun things to do is if you kind of force yourself to write down on a piece of paper or show on a slide uh, where you think you're going, Yes, it actually forces you to try to think f further ahead than you might otherwise. Mm -hmm. And listen, it, it, as, as a division chief, I spent all my time angsting over this when I was hiring people, sure. right? You know, uh, where, you know, who, you know, it's very easy to, to hire last year's successes. Mm -hmm. um, but boy, that's certainly not a guarantee of, of, of the future. And I, I think, you know, uh, I, I would always tell people when I was hiring, you know, hiring them, if I was hiring a lab person or, or a clinical person, you know, you don't, don't get bound up in a particular biology or drug or therapeutic area because, trust me, five years from now, you're going to be doing something else. And, and, and if you're not doing something else, then, you, then there's probably something wrong with you. Yeah. Uh, I think that liberal arts background, I, I think thinking broadly, I think reading broadly just really allows you to do that. I, I mean, part of the thing I love about Stanford, of course, is, I, you know, I'm on, I'm on a campus that is full of, full of smart people who aren't cancer doctors, uh, <laughs> course, yeah. you know, and, uh, you know, so I get to enter, you know, if, if you walk outside at Stanford, I'm sure this is true at UCSF as well, and you, and you throw a stone, you'll hit, you'll hit a member of the National Academy of Sciences, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, you know, being surrounded by people who are smarter than you are is a good way to look smart <laughs> and maybe even to act smart occasionally. Uh, you know, it's funny you say that. Um, I have long subscribed to a habit and I maybe, which is, uh, I always write down in the next five years, what do, uh, what, what, what are the things I even want to work on, yeah. you know? And so I put them in broad buckets. Like I want to think about, I don't know, the role of progression-free survival in, in drug approval. Mm -hmm. I want to think about, I don't know, uh, the role of financial conflict of interest. I want to think about, you know, I put a few buckets. And then I think about like, you know, well, what would I consider metrics of success? And I would be like, well, you know, if we either answer these questions or get people to think about this or try to think of some benchmarks. Mm -hmm. And then five years later, I go back and I look. And you're often surprised, I think, because there are certainly things that you wrote down um, that you thought were unattainable yeah. and you have surpassed that. And there are other things you wrote down that you thought were uh, chip shots and you have missed the green. You know, you've thought were simple and you missed. And then there are places you realize that 
maybe um, you don't you can't answer it. You don't have the uh-huh. tools available, and they should go on the back burner. Um, well, no, I agree. You know, I mean, you know, when I was ECOG breast chair, yes. um, uh, you know, during the time of ECOG breast chair, ECOG, you know, we designed E5103 to yeah. look at adjuvant of Aston. Mm-hmm. And yeah, 94% of the committee thought that was a chip shot. Yes, yes. Uh, we also des- designed Taylor X at the same time. I see. Where we randomized women to receive, 10,000 women to receive or not receive chemotherapy. Yes, yes. For early stage breast cancer. Going yes. against doctors' financial interest. Yes. Going against, uh, you know, the kind of gestalt among many doctors. You know, you have, a, you have a cancer, we have to do something. You know, which is a horrible urge that we all have, right? Uh, and where there was real concerns as to whether or not that trial would ever be able to conclude because would we actually be able to enroll patients. Right. And, and you look back in the fullness of time, and Avastin, of course, is no longer FDA approved for breast cancer. It got removed from the market. And uh, being able to apply a genomic answer, uh, answer to a breast cancer question transformed the field. Um, so yeah, the chip shots are never quite chip shots, or if they are, they're not really. Very, they probably weren't very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think you know, being, and something I always counseled uh, faculty starting uh, at my institution when I was division chief is um, you have to. What you want to do is to be a megalomaniac in your career. Mm-hmm. You know, if if you sh- if you shoot for small things, mm-hmm. you're going to end up being a small person. Mm-hmm. Um, and why do you even want to be in academics if you don't want to change the world? Mm, that's right. Right? Yeah, I agree. Um, so I, 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 I think I'm a great believer in megalomania, you know? <laughs> at least, and, and at least you, you swung for what you wanted to swing for. Um, so, um, you know, I, 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 I think that's so interesting. Um, um, corporate group studies, working yep. with the industry. Um, uh, okay, <clears throat> correct, correct me if I'm, you know, uh, we, we talk a good game that the cooperative group is this impartial agency where yep. we're thinking about scientific questions. And yes, you are that. I mean, uh-huh. there's no doubt about that. At the same time, you need the industry to play ball a little bit. You need them to participate, agree to the protocol, agree to give you the drug. Yes. You, don't have, you don't have unfettered rule. No. And you're also on a, in, on a table with a lot of other big personalities. So how do you navigate uh, those yep. those places, the industry, the other personalities, <clears throat> to actually get something done? Well, actually, uh, I think, listen, my career, I'm not sure it would be possible today because I'm, I'm, I'm a child of the cooperative groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the cooperative groups are not the place they were, uh, you know, two, three decades ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when we did uh, bevacizumab in breast cancer, you know, I mean, I did, as I said, I did the phase two study at my institution along with a few other institutions. Uh, you know, we, we took it to the cooperative groups because Genentech never even thought of doing their own phase three trial. Hmm. Think about that. Yeah. I mean, today, of course, they would never think of doing it with the cooperative group. Of course. Right? <laughs> at the time, they didn't even think of doing the phase three trial. And so the basic design for that was done in a weekend. Wow. Okay. Uh, but they and, agreed to give you drug, and they and they agreed to give us drug. Uh, they were heavily pushed by NCI to give drug. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'll also add that the, the other part of that politics, of course, is that the NCI is not an impartial yes. uh, part part of this process as well. I mean, people at NCI always have deep opinions yes. in terms of what represents the right thing to do in a, in a clinical trial. So, so it's always a, a, a three way discussion. Um, I'd say one of the more discouraging things that, of course, has occurred in recent years, uh, first off, funding for uh, 
you know, for uh, the National Clinical Trials Network has not kept up Correct. with the explosion of new agents. And the end result of that has been that a lot of the studies that are important, the ones that you've emphasized in terms of, you know, actually comparing different things to right. see what actually works best, aren't being done now mm -hmm. uh, because there aren't the resources for it in the cooperative groups anymore. Uh, I think that's a big issue yeah. uh, and, a, and a big concern right now. Um, there's always trials that the cooperative groups are going to do that because no one else can do them. I mean, an example of this is Seema Khan's uh, trial in breast cancer that, you know, randomized patients surgery. To, you know, to, to get, uh, you know, uh, breast surgery or not in the setting of stage four disease. Sure. You know, Great study. Yeah. You know, answered, answered an important scientific question in well, breast we had, cancer. We had 35 retrospective observational yeah, studies. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and, and again, same story that, you know, that trial started, you know, we, we designed that when I, when I was breast chair for ECOG. I see. And, uh, you know, we had to push people to even get that through the breast committee, you know, because right. it wasn't a sexy new drug. It's not a drug. Right. Well, what about, you must have had a trial about a drug and yeah. you wanted to do this study, mm -hmm. but the company said, no, go, we're not going to give you the drug. Oh yeah, that, that happened a, a, fair, a fair amount of the time over the years. And, I think. and what, you have no recourse? No, you have no recourse, yeah. Uh -huh. But I think it speaks to something because, uh, um, I don't know, I often think, you know, from that 30,000 foot view of it, mm -hmm. it is to some degree, I mean, you know, we're in a country where we're, we're spending at a federal level a yeah. trillion dollars on this yeah. healthcare industry. Yeah. And you're asking for a fraction of it to <clears throat> test whether or not something you're spending on year in, year out is of benefit. Uh, it seems like a no-brainer. Give you the fraction of it. If you find it doesn't work, you'll say you recoup all the money and then some. I was at a conference a few years ago. Uh, there's a, a breast cancer conference for, for metastatic breast cancer held every two years in Lisbon. Mm. It's called ABC, Advanced Breast Cancer. I think we're up to ABC6 now this, ABC this, this, six, this okay. year. Yeah. And uh, uh, there's an uh, Englishman who got up and, and gave a wonderful talk about the health economics of drug development and where the money came from to develop drugs. And of course, a huge amount of the money basically comes from the United States, you know, in terms of patient care cost and the like. Right. And, I, and I said, so can you explain to me why the United States should pay twice as much money for, <laughs> for drugs, for drugs that, that, that they have spent most of the money developing? And he says, and the rest of the world is very grateful to you, Dr. Sledge. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I mean, that's the reality, you know, we, you know, we, it gets back to kind of a real basic question, which is uh, what do healthcare systems actually exist for? Um, and to my mind, the rational answer to that question is healthcare systems exist to promote public health, to, to promote the health of populations. Um, in the United States, um, actually my son has affected my thinking on this because he wrote a book on, on, on this. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, uh, We have this, this system that on the one hand, starting in the 19, roughly in the 1930s, bifurcated between things that were done at a po population level, public health level, things like the CDC, yeah. uh, and on the other hand, bifurcated in the direction of how do we care for individuals with diseases. Uh, in, in other countries, those two are frequently together, yeah. right? But we chose to, to have a bifurcation there. And, and a long-term end result of that bifurcation uh, is that we don't think of treating individual patients as part of a larger public health thought process. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's resulted in us paying huge amounts of money to get inferior care yeah. and to have uh, lower, uh, you know, lower or worse health care uh, than former uh, 
Eastern European, uh, you know, former communist republics in Eastern Europe, right. right? In terms of health outcomes. In terms of health outcomes, yeah. right? And you know, that's that's sinful. Yeah. Right. Uh, I mean, it's you know, you know, as I, as I said earlier, you know, the, the you know the big sin in oncology is is that we don't know why our drugs work yes. for people. You know. Uh, the big sin in the healthcare system is that we pay so much money to get such lousy results. Yes. Uh, and 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 the fact that we do that, you know, is kind of baked into just about every part of our healthcare system, including oncology yes. and including drug development oncology. My theory for as to why it even has been permitted so much is that you know many of the things we do offer in healthcare, a few things are really really wonderful yeah. things. They're transformational things. And so the public gives you a lot of rope. Yes. They give you a lot of leeway because you're doing a few transformational things. And then a lot of people have found ways in the system to add in things that are not transformational, right. that, that siphon off revenue. Right. And so, you know, there are probably entire classes and certain drugs that come to my mind that you really wonder if, if I didn't have that drug, you know, the investors would be out some money. Yeah. Would any patient really be different uh, as a result? Well, you know, I mean, the first time this sort of jumped out at me, I think, was when we had EGFR inhibition approved for pancreatic cancer oh, right. based on a two-week yeah. improvement in progression-free survival. Right. Uh, you know, it, it's like, you know, what what are they thinking? Yeah. Uh, you know, when, when you approve something like that, uh, you know, part of this, of course, comes from the deep desperation patients with cancer have to do something about their disease and, and, and doctors to do something for their disease. Uh, there's, there's an old proverb uh, Ancient proverb that says uh, a drowning man will grab for the for the blade of a sword, mm. um, and we do that all the time in oncology. We mm. have people grabbing for blades of swords, mm. right? You know, we you know we give pretty toxic therapies right. uh, for, to have uncertain benefit to to try and pull people out who are drowning. To some degree, the entire reason we have drug regulation is to protect the drowning man from the swords. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I wonder if you're thinking about the healthcare system, the money we spend, what we get for it. I mean, that is certainly a, a very fruitful area of policy thought, of political science, of academic thought. Um, does it get all? Does it translate all the way to your bedside care? Does it affect the way you care for individuals? Do you think so? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I'm certainly, as an individual, I'm I'm, I'm far more cognizant of issues surrounding you know goals of care and end of life than I used to be I must I, I my uh, I used to be the dread of my nurses because they felt I would wait too long to talk about goals of care uh, and, and end of life discussions with patients you know whereas today I, you know my very first discussion with, with someone with metastatic disease is I will eventually come to a point where while I will still have drugs available they probably won't be very good for you and will cause you more sickness than health. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I will tell you that. And at that point, we need to have serious discussions and even discussions before that uh, about what you want to do with the rest of your life. That's certainly been a, a you know sea change for me, you know, as opposed to, you know, let's try everything until two weeks before you're dead, mm -hmm. uh, or or two weeks after you're dead <laughs> in, in, uh, in, in some cases. Uh, but I think beyond that, again, I, you know, I, again, I, I, my mantra is still Bill McGuire, Bill McGuire, Bill McGuire, because he taught me all this, you know, is, is that um, I get increasingly anxious about treatments when I don't understand why they work mm -hmm. and who they work in. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, even though in breast cancer, you know, I've got drugs like, you know, 
navelbeam, gem cytobeam, mm -hmm. you know, things like that. That you know, they're FDA approved drugs for breast cancer, but I use a whole lot less of them now than I did 15, 20 years sure. ago. Uh, and part of why I use a whole lot less of them is, is that I really don't feel they add anything to a patient's survival. Mm -hmm. And I tell patients that. Of course, you'll always have patients who absolutely positively want to do everything possible till mm -hmm. the last possible minute. My father was one of them. Mm. My father died of prostate cancer. Um, Sorry to hear that. Um, 20 years ago, a long time ago. Um, on the day he died, he had a pulmonary embolus. It was clear that he was dying. We were all gathered around the bedside. His oncologist, uh, George Wilding, uh, who, you know, very well-known pro prostate cancer doctor at University of Wisconsin, comes in. And my dad, who was, <laughs> you know, talk, talk, talks long enough. To, he's still alert. Well, this is like six hours before he dies. Says, Dr. Wilding, is there... Any new therapy you think I should try? Mm -hmm. I mean, and we've all seen patients like that, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, that was my dad, and this was despite having an oncologist son who told him, "Dad, absolutely not." Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. uh, but you know, we as a you know we as a profession, we, you know, individually and collectively, have a responsibility to say when that's futile. Yeah, that's not likely to benefit you. And and leaving aside the monetary aspects of it, which yes. are real for the healthcare system, you know, it's just the it's the civilized thing to do for patients, yes. right? It's the humane thing to do for patients. I'm always struck by the surgeons know that they're taught that. I think the surgeons mm -hmm. they teach them. You know, you this is there's some surgeries you don't do. Yeah, I don't think I don't know if we teach our trainees no. this. No, I I don't think we're very good at futility analysis. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's a defect in our training. And, of course, it's a, it's a defect that's made possible by, by the just sheer huge number of new drugs that's come along, right? Uh, I see this in some of my colleagues who, you know, don't think anyone should die without having had a checkpoint inhibitor. No, that's what they, yeah. Right. Some people say, you know, yeah. Uh, which is, you know, again, foreign to me uh, as a thought process. Uh, but... I, you know, when you live in an era when where you know the FDA has one new indication per week. Yes. I mean, I'm sure you've been like I've been to the FDA's yeah, uh, on, you know hematology oncology website. It's literally one new indication per week for the last five years. Yeah. I mean, first off, I as a I don't know how a general medical oncologist survives today. Yeah. Because I couldn't learn one new drug a week. Just to keep up as a judge, right, right. Almost impossible. But I, but I think you know the the flaw in that, you know, as you, as you pointed out, most of these drugs don't work very well for and, and don't work for most people and don't work for very long. Uh, but but they've kind of forced us into thinking that uh, you know we actually can keep people alive forever and ever and ever. They they've they've foisted on us this idea that. You know, cancer is a chronic disease, kind of like rheumatoid arthritis, mm -hmm. you know, and doesn't actually kill you so long as you can pull a new drug out. Mm -hmm. um, but we're not there yet. And, and, and we, ha we have to teach, I think, our trainees, but also ourselves, uh, that there is, a, there is a point beyond which our drugs do not work. And, and we need to be honest with ourselves first, as well as our patients. Yeah, I agree. I think that... Uh... I think that the, the, the number of additional things you could try before someone passes away has grown. Yeah. And, uh, and, and relatedly, the, the hype around the new products is so high. Yes. So that in the mind of the trainee, the new product sounds wonderful. Yeah. 
it's funny how, how people, you know, I don't know, sort of our visceral perceptions of drugs change almost the moment they go off patent. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, it wasn't that long ago in myeloma, bortezomib was a really sexy drug. Yeah. Now, of course, it's generic, so it's, yeah. eh, it's not, not so interesting. Yeah. <laughs> There's a new one now. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, I guess the last topic to talk about is uh, leadership. Uh-huh. You know, you've had a, a number of important leadership roles from your time in the cooperative groups to uh, Indiana University to Stanford Section Chief to the president of ASCO. Yeah. Um, what what has that taught you? And, and what is your philosophy of leadership? I, and I should disclose, you know, I've talked to people who've worked with you on background. <laughs> like all good reporters. Good. And, uh, and uh, you know, your reputation is you're a, a very generous and kind person and mm-hmm. you're very caring. Uh, you know, there are people with different reputations in this business. Yeah. And your reputation is being uh, kind, thoughtful, caring. Thank you. Did you, you set, is that, is that natural for you? Is that, um, is that just who you are? Is that uh, is that a is that a thoughtful, uh, active volition? Um, what do you think about leadership? Um, you know, the, the term that's been overused, but I think it's the right one: is servant leadership. Mm. You know, I, I uh, listen. I think back to the people that I've worked with during my career, uh, and some of them were arrogant twits, right? <laughs> you've, you've worked with some of those people, I'm so, sure. So, so I've heard, so uh, some of them were gentlemen. And, and by the way, both of those can be good leaders. That's, that's the other thing people right? miss, right? I agree yeah, with you. Both, I agree both, with you. Both, both, of, both can be good leaders both, in the right situation. In the right situation. And indeed, different situations probably call for different leadership yes. styles. Um, but by and large, I always start with the assumption I'm working with a lot of smart people. Uh, I'm, I'm frequently not the smartest person in the room. Uh, so, so, if, so if I try to bully smart people, smart people will, will I think, quite appropriately push back. Uh, I would far rather uh, be able to come to a consensus uh, from a leadership standpoint. Uh, consensus doesn't mean everyone agrees. It means most people agree and everyone's had a chance to discuss it. Uh, uh, I think people are much happier in the long run if you do that. But I think going back even further than that, you know, I think, you know, we... We get our habits in this field pretty early on, uh, and the habits you learn as a fellow and as a junior faculty member propagate throughout the entirety of your career. And I think if you, I, I think we should learn kindness early on. I think we should learn collaboration early on. I think we should learn early on that working with other people is a positive good. I think we should learn early on that thinking clearly is good. I think early on we should we should think in terms of. Uh, my career goals should not just involve me getting ahead, but my colleagues getting ahead. Mm-hmm. Probably the most important day I had uh, from a leadership standpoint actually was when I was a fellow almost ready to leave. And, and Bill McGuire sat me down in his office and told me how to read CVs. Uh, and I still, teach, I still teach people how to read CVs based on what Bill McGuire taught me. Interesting. And, he said, and, and he put down a CV yeah. in front of me. And it was uh, some guy who was, you know, who had applied for a position in our, you know, uh, you know, as a faculty member in our program. And I'm looking over the paper, and you know, there's, you know, this you know, he's fresh out of his fellowship, and he's got maybe a dozen publications, and like eleven of the twelve publications are first author publications: science, nature, you know, mm-hmm. uh, cell, you know, mm-hmm. you know, CNS, yeah, you know, right, you know, glory yeah. And and he said, uh, so what do you think of this guy? Would you hire him? You know, science, nature, yeah. cell. Look at all the first author publications. This guy is really hot. McGuire says, I would never, ever hire this person. 
He said, first off, anyone who every single paper on his CV is a first author publication is not someone who will ever work collaboratively with colleagues. He's someone who's only interested in himself. I would not touch this person with a 10-foot pole. Interesting. Okay. Okay. And I, you know, that, I mean, I was taught that at an early point yes. in time. And, and, and so I, whenever I've looked at someone's CV since then, that's the first thing I look at. You know, uh, I mean, he, he also said, you know, you need, you need productivity and you want first author papers, yes. obviously, because it's sign of it collaboration. But, but you also want to have, show signs of collaboration, show signs that someone is not just interested in themselves. That's interesting. Uh, and that, you know, uh, as a profession, you know, I, l- listen, there are some real heroes in our profession. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not one of them, okay. I don't think I disagree. I, 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 you know, I, I mean, I, you know, the, the, you don't see yourself as one. That's probably see, why you are one. Well, I don't hmm. see myself as one. Hmm. I mean, listen, I, I in, in my field, uh, you know, Bernie Fisher, hmm. uh, you know, revolutionized mm-hmm. uh, how cooperative trials were done in breast cancer, and, and he took heat for it, and took a huge amount of heat for it for mm-hmm. a very long time, mm-hmm. um, but. But he also st- stayed around too long. Mm-hmm, okay, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he was also first author on every presentation mm-hmm, at ASCO, mm-hmm. and didn't give people a chance. And didn't give the people a chance to grow. Yeah, uh, you know. And so, as long as he was the head of the of the NSABP, no one else presented at, uh, from the podium. At well, ASCO. that's another unspoken part of leadership: is knowing when to take your turn down. Yeah, you you have to be willing. You know, and you know, in the in the in the breast group at at ECOG. Yeah. Uh, our philosophy then and now was you, you had a new breast committee chair with every site visit. Mm. So you were breast committee chair for maybe five or six years. Interesting. Uh, and then someone else took over. Uh, and, That's you know, a good and, model. You know, and that, that meant that you had a continued string of leaders coming along. Well, I, I've, I've been critical of some national organizations where the leadership has been the same for like 20 years and no oh, it kills you right? <laughs> it kills me it kills you i, I mean it kills me yeah it, um, and it kills the field it too. kills the field because they're still wedded to their old ideas right. and sometimes you need people to change so that ideas can change yeah but let me tell you my thought on leadership because i have no not, not even close to the experience you have because i've never led anything except for the fact that i've led like the few people who work with me on projects mm-hmm. and here's what i've sussed out and i'm curious what your thoughts on it um you know, it, 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 different people bring different talents um, to the field, and they bring different levels of uh, intrinsic motivation, and they have, and that, and that, and that can be that can be modified. Uh-huh. And I think, like, so often you 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 have your team, and you think about like, well, how can you motivate people on the team? And I think that people who think that the right way to motivate somebody is to put pressure on them or yell at them, I think that's actually like never works. No. It just simply isn't, and just doesn't work. And or, only, or, doesn't, or doesn't work for very long. It doesn't work for very long. Mm-hmm. Short burst. Yeah. But maybe it works like they give the appearance <laughs> of something, but yeah. uh, underneath it all, there's a lot of errors uh, because there's no attention to detail. Yeah. Um, what I find, or the only thing I've ever found that possibly works is if you, I mean, there are a lot of people who... Um, they, the, the thing that they're missing is in their heart, they don't really understand why this is worth doing with like vigor. Yeah. Like, why does it really matter? And if you can, I don't know, almost like a motivational speaker, motivate yeah. them. Yeah. Well, and, and you see this in clinical trials as well. Yeah. Right? You know, uh, listen, uh, in my clinic, the most important people in terms of clinical trials are first the data managers, okay. second the nurses, yeah. and then somewhere lower down on the list is me. Okay, I think you're right because because the de- that's that's what's <laughs> right. driving the trial. You know, and, and so 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 if I can't keep those people motivated and, and energized, the, then the trial's not going to work. Um, and that's but that's true in every aspect of leadership. I think 
I, I just, I, I don't, I've never understood why people get pleasure being nasty to other people. And it's, and, and, and part of what you see in a, in a lot of leaders, uh, we've seen it certainly at a national level as well, um, is, is this idea that, you know, I, I am always right. Um, I don't think anyone's always right. Uh, and, and you know, it, it's it's why it's why we don't have kings ruling anymore, right? right? Uh, because we realized a long time ago, or most of us did, that collaboratives, cooperatives, uh, do better than individuals. Right. Yeah. And and I think the related thing to recognizing you're not always right is, um, you know, a culture where people feel like they're always right or they have to always be right. It's often a culture where people are unwilling to say what they think when they're not 100% sure. Sometimes you want them to say what they think so that you can hear some ideas that are different than the ideas in your head, even if you dismiss them. Um, these days I find so many times you're in a meeting and somebody didn't like some idea and then only uh -huh. like privately later they'll tell me, I think you should have said something. Maybe we're all wrong. You know, who knows? Well, you know, everything in the world can be reduced to a sports analogy, okay. right? And, you know, one of the things I hear when, when people talk about NFL quarterbacks You've probably heard the term "hero ball." Mm -hmm. yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. you know where, where the quarter, where the quarterback has to, you know has to throw a strike every play, right? Uh, and of course, and of course, that that term is always used contemptuously. Mm -hmm. You know, because yes. those teams always end up losing, right? You know, when the quarterback has to play hero ball, and it's uh, uh, the other kind of sports analogy of. Was one time, uh, and I'm, I'm Green. I was an old Green Bay Packer fan since oh, I grew up in Wisconsin. Okay, one time Bart Starr, who, you know, who went to the first two Super Bowls as quarterback, was complaining complained to Vince Lombardi about his offensive line, uh, you know, not protecting him well enough. And Lombardi told the offensive line on the next play, "I want you to let everyone through to him." <laughs> <laughs> Just a reminder. Yeah. Starr never complained about the offensive line. <laughs> And, and, yeah. and, 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 you know, we all have a role to play yeah. and all of our roles are important. And, and anyone who thinks, uh, I mean, first off, leadership isn't permanent. Mm -hmm. Leaders do turn over. No one, no one can or should hang around forever. Uh, so you might as well try to have as much fun as possible and, and make as many lives possible uh, to have a future. Uh, that's, that's always worked for me. That's well put. I, I think our, our time's almost up. I just, I'll give you the last thought, but I guess I would close by just saying that I think, I don't know, I mean, I think uh, there, there are many things I admire about you. And I think if, and I, and I, and I wish um, junior people would, would just pick one of them, which is um, reflect, on, reflect on like why, what we do and why we do what we do. Take some time to think about the big picture and write up your thoughts like George Sledge always did. Because I think it will make you better and whatever job you're doing, it'll force you to think about what, what you think. And it might make the rest of us a little bit better too by, um, you know, inspiring other people, by giving other people ideas, by maybe striking a chord mm -hmm. in other people. And so I think that a lot of that kind of writing is maybe even the most important thing we do in academic medicine. Well, certainly the most fun thing. The most fun thing. Uh-huh. Any, any parting of wisdom for the... the no, just a real delight talking with you. It's a real pleasure. George Sledge, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. 
Plenary Session is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it. Until next time.